This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Here's some clips of uh, ETFO President Sam Hammond on the lack of response from the from the boards and, and the political party that he has supported for so many years. It absolutely should be an election issue. It should be an issue for everyone in this province. We're talking about uh, our children here. We're talking about workplace safety. Oh, I wish I had a school bell right now. Ding, 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 ding. Election time. Time to hover up to the table and hold out your hand. Again, taking a very, very, very serious problem and politicizing it to get more cake out of a desperate government. And you know what? Chances are this government's just desperate enough to do it again and again and again. Uh, anyway, let's try to separate the politics out of this and find out exactly why this is all happening. We're bringing in Todd White, board chair, Ward 5 trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and with us now. Todd, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. So uh, why is this happening now? Why are we seeing these reports that, you know, 70% of teachers are experiencing some sort of witnessing violence? Yeah, it's definitely an issue that uh, we're hearing more and more of. Uh, as the years go on, we ourselves keep internal data in terms of uh, incident reports. So we've been tracking uh, any type of violent incidents uh, within our schools. So the numbers are increasing. It could, on one hand, be a reporting uh, result. On the other hand, um, we are seeing an increase in violent incidents. A lot of the uh, incidents uh, tend to be uh, our younger students, a lot of uh, unidentified students with uh, different uh, uh, special needs. So there are complex challenges, but essentially when it comes down to it, our our main concern is is equipping uh, our teachers, our our staff, uh, in order to uh, handle these issues and problems on the front lines. And we've done an okay job at it, uh, but certainly resources are scarce and in some cases require uh, definitely more attention. Why the increase? Why are we seeing an increase in this of, of late? Yeah, it, like I said, it, it's a it's a good question. In terms of why it's happening, uh, it's certainly complex. And I, I know on our end that uh, we are encouraging the the reporting process. So we want all of our staff to tell us exactly what's going on, from minor incidents to major incidents, obviously. Um, and then from there, uh, we want to then focus our our supports and services. Um, but as you can imagine, uh, and you look. Uh, at other data over the years, mental health uh, issues ha- are on the rise. Uh, you have other special needs that are on the rise. Uh, right now, we have a special education uh, resource rate of about a quarter of our students have some level uh, of special education support. Um, so there are variables that tie together. and. Across the board, many of these statistics are on the rise. So uh, there definitely isn't one reason, but uh, there's a number of complex reasons that that feed uh, the current situation. Uh, Why is there not funding there to address this? Yeah, and and that's a good question. So when it comes to our classroom teachers, for instance, their main priority, as you can imagine, is teaching the students in their classroom. A number of uh, behavioral issues, violent issues, definitely are a distraction and could take a lot of a, teach, uh, of a teacher's time in that classroom. So we have, for instance, you know, educational assistance, other supports in place, uh, early interventions where we try to assist students to, in a proactive way, um, uh, solve some of these issues and problems. And 
really, when it comes down to it, it's those scarce resources. So we do have educational assistance. We have a good allotment of, of certain social work staff and, and other supports. Um, but at the end of the day, could we use more? I mean, the answer is always going to be yes. Um, but ideally, we have to make those strategic decisions on, uh, on where we're going to place those resources. Uh, some have said and pointed to that, it, and, and you're alluding to this as well, that um, uh, the integration of special needs uh, with the rest of the student population without the proper support that is needed to do this. Would that be accurate? Yeah, there, there is a bit of a trend. Um, I, I wouldn't say or, or lay blame on special needs, but when you look at um, the number of students... I don't mean to lay, lay uh, blame on special needs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just on the way it's being managed. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, precisely. So when you look at, at recent uh, initiatives and numbers, uh, the number of self-contained class, classes are, are reduced. As you said, it, it tends to be more of an inclusion model, and that's not just an effort by school boards. Um, it tends to be a, a preference of parents uh, to have uh, students in a regular class versus a, a self-contained class. And that's understandable. So, yeah, and that's understandable, and especially uh there's a stronger desire for students to be in their home schools, not traveling halfway across the city to mm-hmm. a particular program, for instance. So what it does is, as a result, requires us to try to uh, divvy up those resources between the 100-plus schools that we have to make sure that they're equipped. And it really is a, a challenge, one classroom at a time, to make sure that each and every student has what they require. And, it, and of course, with resources, you're juggling it between a number of different classes. And there's a number of different strategies. There, there isn't a magic uh, solution where an EA will solve all of the tr- problems. And, it, and it often, you know, it's perceived as an EA will, will, is the, is the be-all to end-all of whatever the issue is. Um, but we have layers and layers of different types of supports, and it really comes down to how a student is identified and what their needs are. So, uh, obviously, uh, the uh, Teachers Fe- uh, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario conducts the survey. Uh, whether the numbers are accurate or not, it certainly is increasing, and that's an alarming uh, statistic either way. Uh, what do they want out of this? How do they feel that this should be solved? What are they asking for? Yeah, and, and I've, I've spoken with some of our local representatives. What they're pushing um, is something that, I mean, very easily as a board, um, most parents can get behind, which is increased supports for their, for their students. Um, so certainly as a board, for years, every year, uh, we've been consistent in asking for um, increased special education uh, support, uh, increased funding for staff, uh, increased funding for other types of services. Um, so that's that's uh, my interpretation of, of what they're asking. Um, certainly, from their point of view as well, it's to allow their members to focus on their, their main goal, which is the education of our students, and try to eliminate some of these safety concerns and distractions from their ultimate uh, goal. Uh, has this, is this becoming politicized? Are you worried this is going to be an election issue and, and, and more of a time to, uh, to pad contracts than it will to be actually, actually solving this problem? Yeah, and, and it's a good question. I mean, is it, is it politicized? I don't think anyone's hiding that. I think the timing is is quite <laughs> quite clear. That boy uh, is it ever. <laughs> yeah, these these can't, no one's hiding the fact that this is lining up with a provincial election. So definitely, there's a political component. Does uh, that think, do, does the discussion lose credibility because of that? Did this just start 
today? Did this just start this month, this week? I mean, I think that's what makes parents and, and, and voters cynical about all of this stuff. Well, and, and we've, I've sat through sessions with parents as well, and they've asked some of those same questions, which is, you know, why now? Um, my, my child has been going through this for years. Where were the supports five years ago? You know, what is it about, you know, 2018 all of a sudden that it's, it's the critical issue? It's been critical for because a Because every other issue has been padded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we're narrowing it down. But these are the type of discussions, let's be honest, that we'd welcome rarely going into an election. And I, my observation is, is the last number of provincial elections, you haven't seen school issues on the top of the list in terms of uh, No, it's never been issues. the school issue. It's you know, always it, been about it's all, always been about contracts. That's right. It's been about contracts. And they've also, when you look at the timing of those contracts, they've been carefully juggled you know, around election dates and things like that. So, so it, it's been, it definitely there's a major political component to it. But to be honest, if we could once and for all, as an election issue, have students first uh, as a concern, I mean, like I said, that's something that we have no problem getting behind because that's the way it should be. Uh, so this issue in particular, you know, let's make it an election issue, but uh, let's not stop there either, <laughs> whether the election's over or not or, or just beginning. You know, th- this is so critically important to so many of our students that it needs to be number one, not just in an election year. Where do you think this is going, Todd? Will we see change? Um, I mean, as you know, everything's incremental. I, I'm not sure that we'll see a profound change overnight. Um, but, you know, we have to add voices to that conversation. We need boards to speak up as well in terms of uh, the challenges that they have. You know, I, not to get into complex, you know, numbers and other, you know, things behind the scenes, but when you look board to board uh, and the special education resources that they have, they're similar, similar board to board. But when you look at the actual special education rates between boards, some boards, like I said, we're at about 25% of our students have some type of spec ed resource. You could go to another board you know, within driving distance, and their number might be half as much. Mm. But they have just as much funding as us. So how do we deliver with the same budget to twice as many students? So you start looking at, okay, how is this structured? So is the question we need more money, or is the question that we need a better distribution of dollars? Um, And are we actually looking per student? Are we looking per board? Are we looking, you know, whatever that might be? And that's where it's broken. You know, it's not right now, it's it's not need-based. It's based mainly on numbers. And uh, in Hamilton, our numbers are are much higher than they are in other areas of uh, the province. So from that perspective, we are underfunded. So something needs to change. Uh, we need to see the extra resources, uh, a fairer model for uh, province-wide. So I think, you know, you start to get down to, is it money? Is it the use of money? Is it the division? Uh, you know, you have to really look at all of those components. Uh, so is this, uh, and here's another, uh, another addition to that, is this about ratios, enough students, or sorry, enough teachers, uh, uh, assistance or such to help with the amount of special needs students there are in per class? Is it a ratio issue? Well, yeah. I mean, you can get into contracts. Ontario doesn't have a limit, for instance, of how many um, you know IEPs or identified students may be in one class. But you know, I could give you examples of, of a certain school where there might be 20 students and 15 of those students have some type of identified or individual education plan. I could then shift to another class in our board that might have one or 
no students identified. So imagine being the teacher trying to teach curriculum where you have to know 15 students' individual needs and another teacher may have only one or two students. You know, I know in BC, uh, through some of their contract negotiations, I think they capped the number of uh, identified students or IEP students at, I want to say, six or something like that per class to allow teachers to have that focus to make sure they have the supports. So it really is, you know, a challenge because we have to start making these decisions based on need. You also look at class size. You look at, you know, I'll give you an example. Over the years, we always have these class size debates. You know, is it class size, right. you know, we're going to reduce it by a number, increase it by a number, you know, which is minuscule. The real question you might ask yourself is class composition. Hmm. What's the composition of the class and what are the challenges? That's not to suggest you split the class or it's a spec ed issue, but making sure that the students or the classes are resourced in a way to suit the composition of the class. Todd White has been with us, board chair and Ward 5 trustee with the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. A survey by the Ontario Teachers Union says 70% of El- uh, Ontario elementary educators have been or experience- have seen or experienced classroom violence. Todd, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. All right. It is uh, 1225. And, you know, I, I don't deny, I-, I don't doubt this is a problem. And, you know, I- I've, uh, I think it's fabulous the way we are trying to integrate everybody into the classroom. I see it in my in my 10 year old's classroom and uh it's great to see the way the other students respond to this so um you know like anything it's it's not just about the idea and specifically this government it's about doing it right uh you know we've seen that with electricity we've seen that with minimum wage all great ideas it's just man are you doing it right are you thinking about other people other than your election result and, and obviously this is a situation that needs to be uh, addressed and is something that is uh, on the increase. But again, I just find it incredibly rich. And as Todd White said, you know, how often in the last several years have we been going through elections, contract, teachers' contracts, our kids lose extracurricular activities, they go on strike, they do this, they do that, um, or threaten to. And our kids are used as pawns. And this has been going on for the last several years. Has anybody mentioned anything about the damn kids? It's all about contracts. It's all about labor contracts. It's all about the teachers. It's not about the damn kids. And now it's to the point where Premier Wynn goes up with the suitcase full of money long before the election to get all of these deals done so it won't tarnish her election. She's ignored... Uh, you know, she's catered to the teachers' unions at the expense of health care. The doctors and the nurses are all ticked off. And again, I agree there's a problem here. I agree that the majority of Ontario parents support their teachers, support their kids, support their schools. But for this Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario to come out and say, after being in bed with the government for the last 15 years, saying, oh, no, 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 this ain't right. You got to redo this using the bully tactics that they do is a bit rich for me. Are you kidding me? Maybe the last three times you've shaken down this government, you should have done it for the kids. How does anybody take whatever this union says with any, any credibility whatsoever? And how convenient around election time, there's the ETFO shaking down the government. We need this. It's for the kids. 
What a pile of malarkey. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The federal liberals are spelling out their long-term plan to reform Canada Post today. Uh, what will happen? Will we see change? I'm guessing we won't see a lot of anything except the status quo. Uh, they have decided that uh, they're not going to continue adding super mailboxes, which they started back in the 1980s because, let's be honest, mail delivery is falling through the basement. Uh, the only reason Canada Post is staying afloat, one of the major reasons, is parcel delivery, which is the future, which is what they should concentrate on. Uh, Less and less of us are mailing letters. That's just the reality of it all. And, of course, we started with the Super Mailbox campaign in the 1980s, and then it's sort of been a political hot potato ever since. Uh, The last Conservative government finally said, all right, let's just keep moving with this. What's the reasoning for not? And, of course, it became an election issue. Uh, The NDP, who were leading the polls at the time, said, we're going to bring back free mail delivery for everybody. And, of course, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, then the third-place candidate in the election, said, well, yeah, we're going to do that, too. And then, of course, got elected. But much like electoral reform, this is kind of out the window. And really what he's done is he's just stopped the progression of the super mailboxes and continued on with some households. And don't give me this malarkey about a senior's neighborhood because my parents live in the house that we grew up in and they're the only old couple left. The whole neighborhood is turned over like two or three times. The school, the, the, the elementary school there is right across the road from them is doing gangbusters. It's all young families in that neighborhood. So it's got nothing to do with old people uh, because older neighborhoods are now livable with young people. So, you know, I don't know where that excuse comes from. But at the end of the day, what's happened here is uh, nobody's getting their mail delivery back. The 800,000 that lost it in the last uh, uh, go-round, they don't get theirs back. But they're preserving it for everybody else, which to me, you know, by the fact that they're not bringing it back for everybody else means that it ain't needed. They don't want it. They can't afford it. It's a waste of money. It's a technology that's on its way out, if you could call it that. So clearly, they're not interested in it. They're not interested in bringing it back. So why would they hang on to it? So this is just going to continue on and slowly and slowly and slowly. The whatever member, the ever people that are left will slowly lose it over time in different governments, I'm guessing. But to stand and make an election promise that you're going to bring it back for everybody, just like the NDP said they were going to do. And of course basically just stop stopping super mailboxes really what have you accomplished uh let's bring in mike pallock he is uh qp canadian union of postal workers uh, federal liberals of course spelling out their long-term plan for canada post today and mike is with us now mike thanks for taking the time to join us we appreciate this today good afternoon so what are your thoughts on what the Prime Minister and the Liberals are announcing here? Uh, they're stopping the spread of super mailboxes, but they're certainly not doing anything to bring the rest of us back on. Well, obviously we're disappointed that the Prime Minister has broken his promise to restore door-to-door mail delivery. Uh, about 840,000 addresses uh, lost it, most of them on the day they announced uh, actually ending, ending that program. So uh, that's a disappointment. Uh, however, uh, we don't believe the issue is dead. Uh, we're at the bargaining table now, and it's an issue on the bargaining table. 
So, uh, Mike, what do you what do you hope to accomplish this uh, with it being on the bargaining table? Uh, you're looking for them to reinstate it. I mean, again, I'll pose the question to you that I was I was mentioning earlier. Clearly, they're not reinstating it. They're not interested in that. So, what's the sense of keeping a piecemeal operation like this? Well, they, they may not be interested in reinstating it, but we think that Canadians very much are, and that's the message that they've given with every opportunity including the uh, task force and the review uh, that the federal government just had at Canada Post. So you think Canadians are interested in investing in an obsolete system? I I don't believe it is an obsolete system. You you talk about uh, the... Well, just the volume, just the volume. Well, those are delivered to the door as well. Uh, You know, the parcels and the mail, they come together. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the system as it stands now is actually built to handle fluctuations in, in mail volumes. As the number of... Uh, uh, Mike, is there really fluctuations decline? in mail volumes, or are they just going down every year? There's no fluctuations in mail volume. Personal letters, personal mail, everything other than packages is going down every year. Is it not, Mike? Uh, certainly, and the system that's in place is able to account for that. What we see is that you don't have letter carriers walking to your door with empty, empty mail bags every day. If there's no mail, they move on, and that's built on, built into the system that we have to design the routes. And that's why you've actually seen the number of letter carriers decline in lockstep uh, with the decline in letter mail volumes. So the system can account for that now. So why should some have mail delivery and some not? Well, we believe that they should be expanding door-to-door service uh, as finances allow. This is something that Canada Post can afford to do and should be doing. But it's not a case of affording of it, it, though, is it, Mike? Is it cases of, of what it's needed? People just aren't using the service as much anymore, other than parcel I, I, delivery. I think every scientific poll that's been done since 2014 has said the majority of this country would like to see door-to-door delivery stay. Well, again, we can take polls and, and tweak them any way we want. What we can't deny is the stat that less and less people are actually doing that every day. Well, of course. Well, people's mailing habits are changing. As you said, we're seeing fewer letters. We're seeing more parcels. But uh, those are those are delivered together, and so the one can uh, support the other. Again, how do you how do you decide on who gets mail and who di- who doesn't? It's you know, if you're lucky to move into an address where there's mail delivery, that's what determines whether you get it or not. Is that fair? Uh, that's absolutely correct. And people, uh, when they move into houses, they're able to look at the services that are available to them. What's not fair is to yank the rug out from underneath them once once people are living there. There are a number of people who, who really rely on the, these services. But they only, that's only part of, the, part of the people that are getting this service. I mean, super mailboxes have been around since the 1980s. Yeah, in, uh, in suburban areas and outlying, outlying areas. But it's a completely different thing uh, to go into existing neighborhoods, uh, many of these sort of post-war era neighborhoods, and uh, stick these mailboxes into communities that weren't designed for them. I don't know. That Does that seem like a valid enough reason to spend millions of dollars on a service that's continually declining? Well, I, I don't think the service is continually declining. We're seeing uh, people mailing fewer letters and mailing more parcels. 
All right. Thanks for the uh, time, Mike. We appreciate it. Mike uh, Palesic has been with us, QP, Canadian Union of Postal Workers, uh, talking about uh, Canada Post and the Prime Minister's plan moving forward. Thanks for the time, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you. It is uh, 118. Uh, let's keep going here. Let's bring in uh, Christo Avali, Social Sciences Humanities Research Council, uh, Council postdoctor fellow in history, University of Toronto, is with us now. Christo, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, going back to the last election, uh, uh, the Prime Minister, the Liberals were in third place. NDP looked like they were going to walk away with it. They said that they were going to reinstate, uh, they were going to stop super mailboxes and I believe reinstate home mail delivery. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said he'll match that and uh, and doubled down. And, of course, now he has been elected uh, and says that he's not going to do that. But he is, he is going to uh, stop the continuation of super mailboxes, which I guess has, has been stopped now for a couple of years. What are your thoughts on all of this? I mean, I think it's a promise broken, and I think it's broken in such a way that it kind of makes no one happy. I mean, there were some people... And I, and I think maybe maybe you have this position that maybe, uh, just based on what I've heard, that, that cutting the home mail delivery, scaling it back, uh, is maybe the right thing to do given consumption habits of, of mail. Mm-hmm. Um, and some would say, well, we, shouldn't, we should restore it, and you know, maybe the super mailboxes from the 80s should stay, but you know, what was home mail delivery you know, in 2014 should still be home mail del- delivered today. But what Justin Trudeau did was stop the transitions that were happening kind of during the last days of the Harper government, um, but refused to keep his promise to reverse those changes. And as you know, that was a promise made um, with an effort to kind of shore up an anything but conservative vote. Trudeau realized that, you know, trade union voters, public servants were going to be essential to winning. uh, And those people won't vote for the liberals if they actually run on liberal policies. But they will if they run on NDP policies in many cases. So that's what they did in that particular case. Similarly with electoral reform, as we've seen, the government, upon winning power, uh, you know, walked back some of those promises, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes transparently, sometimes less so. Is it un- was this one unrealistic, do you think, Christo? I mean, you know, uh, I was just talking to the union leader. He said a 2014 uh, survey said the majority of Canadians want this reinstated. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the data is there. Less and less people are using this service. That's why we are where we are. And that started back in the 1980s. Um, uh, you know, the union thinks that, that, that this is going to come back, not alone, not let alone stop, but come back and, and reinstate home mail delivery. Uh, clearly, no government seems to be interested in reinstating it. So does that not mean it's done? I mean, why sit in, on, on the fence and give some people the privilege and others not? Well, it's costing everyone. Well, I mean, I think the government, again, wanted to take two sides of the same, the same political coin here. And I think, again, yeah. they, they felt if we break the promise, but only partially, mm. if we you know, outright go back to the Harper line, maybe that's worse than actually keeping our promise. I think, you know, is a promise feasible? I mean, Canada is an unimaginably wealthy society. If the government wanted to have uh, an individual mailman drop you off mail five times a day, we could do that if we wanted to have the resources. So the promise is feasible. Whether people think it's the best use of Canadians' money, Mm -hmm. you know, or Canada Post's money is another question. The promise is feasible. 
It's not like if Trudeau promised to cure cancer within six months Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're just not there. But again, politically, I feel that the government more or less shares the Harper vision for Canada Post, which is to kind of see it as a a service in decline. And I think what the union's saying, and the union has its own self-interest in this, is saying that Canada Post has a lot to offer and that home mail delivery, maybe not being as important as it used to be, could still be part of the parcel system. So the debate isn't so much on, you know, is mail traffic going to go up in terms of non-parcel mail, but more the parcel service should go to homes in some cases. Right. And I think that's what they're they're, they're trying to argue. So you know what? Yeah. So And, Crystal, that's a great idea, you know, but that's called modernizing Canada Post. Uh, rather than trying to hang on to a model that is clearly broken and the g- current government doesn't in the last one certainly don't seem interested in reinstating any of this, clearly indicating that it is broken with that decision. Why not move forward and specialize in packages? Why not move forward in getting people who need door to door service, whether it be elderly or those uh, with issues and such, why not work on a system that caters to those people who need it instead of wasting your money on a blanket system like this that really doesn't do anything? I mean, with Trudeau's uh, uh, response here, he hasn't fixed the problem at all. All he's, he's done is put it on the back burner. No, I think you're right. I think you know, in Trudeau's case, again, politically, and I think even in terms of Canada Post, even if you think it's the right or wrong decision, Pick one of the two streams. Pick the, yeah. the, the status quo we have and do it and eat the cost or go yeah. in the kind of Harper direction and say, look, we're embracing this new package. You know, I will say that, you know, Canada Post does need to modernize. I mean, some of it, it's already modernizing now, kind of being forced to modernize just by the, the reality of online shopping and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and things like that. But, you know, the, the, the union has made proposals to modernize Canada Post and, uh, you know, both the liberal and conservative governments haven't been willing to listen, but, you know, there's been increasing talk about the value of, of postal banking uh, on everything from giving access to banking in small communities. In many towns now, a lot of them are losing the one or the, the, the small bank they yeah. would have there, giving banking access in the community. Um, and one of the things, and, you know, that's always a hot topic, but, you know, in some countries, postal bankings kind of work as payday loan places, but without the loan sharking. Right. And so, you know, Canada Post could modernize itself even outside of the traditional you know, guy or gal bringing your uh, piece of mail to the mail. You know what? Doing postal banking. Christo, that, you know, I have no problem with that. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you hear of small towns that are losing their only bank branch because of just cost and, and, and sort of things like that. And for situations like that, it, it makes absolutely perfect sense. But instead of hanging on to an old model, why doesn't, why don't these people come to the table and say, hey, we understand the way it's going, but we do see a need here. We do see the fact that, you know, there's a postal outlet in every small area that we could be used to supply other services to let's scrap our home name our home mail delivery which is clearly archaic and declining and then invest our time and efforts into things like this but you can't suck and blow at the same time well you know i think in terms of scrapping home mail delivery i don't think we're, we're there yet we probably won't be there yet for a while in terms of scrapping it no by you know, you know by that yeah. i mean super mailboxes for everybody and then it goes from there i mean Again, how can you justify paying this service for some and not the rest entirely based on their address? It doesn't well, make we, sense. Well, we have services like that all over the all over the country, though. I mean, certain places don't have libraries, but they still pay provincial taxes. I mean, like my, my view on on the postal banking, it, it, 
specifically, I think the unions proposed it, but there's actually been pushback by the, the traditional banking institution. Well, I guess. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Nobody wants to and, have, come in and have someone, you know, shave the shave their head for them. And, and I think, you know, the two the two parties that have recently that have always held political power have rather cozy relationships with the banks. And and I think in many ways, uh, the previous the, 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 the Harper era uh, leadership of Canada Post, from the union's perspective, at least, um, they, they, they felt that he was there to make Canada Post redundant. Uh, he was there to, to, to make it, to, to prepare it for privatization or to prepare it for, redund- or for irrelevancy. And they didn't want to listen to an idea like postal banking because that would instantly make Canada Post, you know, a, a company for the 21st century in some ways. And that could be used, for instance, to lower the cost. But Canada Post is a crown corporation. That increased value from postal banking could be used to and this is a possibility, cover the costs of home mail delivery. You know, and that's a, a debate we could have about whether that's the right thing to do. But that I think it would be really important. I think it would be really important for the union to decipher what Canada Post can do to survive going forward as opposed to trying to hang on to what it was. I mean, you know, the ideas that you've raised are all very credible and all make sense. Um, but again, you know, when you keep screaming about home mail delivery, I think I think th- that loses credibility. I think people just go, you know what, you're outdated. We don't want to hear your ideas because you're still doing this old one. I mean, if well, they showed know. if they showed some sort of uh, incentive to to really modernize this instead of trying to hang on to a broken model, maybe they'd have more support. Well, you know, some of the, the I will say that 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 the Canada Post, uh, the Postal Workers Union, and um, in the Public Service Alliance is another smaller kind of postal-based union. Both of those unions have been pushing for years the idea of postal banking, and they've gotten no traction. And the reality is, is that at bargaining, you know, all the union can do usually is address kind of workplace conditions. Yeah. Uh, they, can, you know, they can address staffing to a certain degree. They can't impose a business decision. They can't tell No, that makes bargaining. sense, yeah. So the union, all the union can say is in bargaining, defend its short and medium term yeah. members' interests like and any that, group would do. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And can propose to the company and propose to the public saying, hey, look at this idea of postal banking. And the company can choose or not, choose to agree or not. And maybe the company feels it's not the way to go. Maybe they don't like the idea for ideological reasons. Maybe it's a bit of both. But I think, you know, from the postal workers' perspective, they have been proposing postal banking as an option and maybe i gotta i gotta cut you off there we're simply out of time christo christo avalis is with us social sciences and humanities research council postdoctor fellow history university of toronto christo as always thanks for the time much appreciated thanks for having me you're listening to the scott thompson show weekdays from noon to three on am 900 chml we got an interesting story here about kids and that's why it got my attention uh as the father of two a 15 and a 10 year old both of which are very involved in organized sports and, uh, and school sports as well. So I found this story uh, pretty fascinating, uh, and it's, uh, it's on our website if you want to check it out. I'm going to read you the story. Uh, Ontario father considers legal action after son denied tryout with older school basketball team. Uh, and this is the story. Uh, to his basketball teammates, he's known as Brycey Buckets. Bryce Dennis's father describes the mono Ontario basketballer as having, quote, a real natural knack to get the ball in the basket. 
Elvis Dennis said his son, who has just turned nine this week, has regularly competed with and against older players in the Canadian Youth Basketball League. He was even selected as an all-star in the league's fourth fourth grade age group. Bryce is in grade three at St. Benedict Elementary School. While he plays rep basketball above his age group, he won't get the chance to do the same on the school's junior level team, which consists of students between grades four and six. Four, five, and six make the team. And, of course, Bryce is in grade three. He was denied the opportunity to try out for the team, his dad said. The Dufferin Peel Catholic Catholic District School Board said Bryce is more than welcome to try out for the team next year. It's very simple. It's a matter of eligibility based on grade, said a spokesperson. Unfortunately, the student is just not in the appropriate grade to try out, so he is ineligible. The board said there are over 40 eligible players trying out for just 12 open spots, so they have to leave room for those that fit in the age bracket. It's a matter of fairness. So Campbell also suggested that a, allowing a student to move up to the age group sets the precedent that can make it acceptable for or, or older kids to drop down. That's kind of goofy. No, that won't happen. But I do believe that the board has a point here, and I think the father's wrong. There is the, the article goes on to say there is no actual board policy dictating that a younger player can't try out for an older team. But Elvis said there is a policy strictly prohibiting any form of discrimination, and he feels his son's situation is a prime example of age. If this was something to do with the math team or spelling team or even the chess club for that matter, I don't think it would have the same issue. Again, these aren't. The school says there's no. It says he's considering taking the issue to the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal. That he said all he wants for Bryce is a chance to try out. Asked why he won't just and let Bryce, Bryce try out for the uh, for a proper team. Elvis said he wants to play with kids his own age. He says, as a parent, it's my job to constantly support and push my child in whatever avenue he chooses. Correct. Until, until, until is it is at the expense of another child who is eligible. And that's what the parent is forgetting. If Elvis wants Bryce to be in the NBA, then send him off to the private leagues. But school doesn't operate that way. Again, if Bryce makes this team, another kid who really is eligible doesn't. It's not about changing the rules to put the best team on the court. It's school sports, not a rep team you pay for. Both my kids play organized sports and school sports. My girl plays high school hockey. The rule for their league is rep players aren't allowed. Because it screws up the whole league. Because some have more, some have less. Usually depending around money. So why is this any different? I don't know. Clearly Bryce has a talent. And if the father feels so inclined to exploit that talent or encourage it, whatever way he wants to look at it, great. 
but you don't change the rules at the school and threaten to file a human rights complaint because you're not playing by the rules. It's simple. So it's great that you're pushing your son, but it's at the expense of someone else's son. That's not right. You want to put down your money, compete for the team, and play rep? That's up to you. But because your kid is gifted, or you feel he is, doesn't give you the right to dictate how the school sets its policy. The kid can play next year. What happens next year? Well, he doesn't want to play with kids his own age. Well, next year he will be with kids his own age. Then what? What happens when he's a senior on the team? Does he get to go play grade 7 and 8? Why don't we just ship him off to high school if he's so good? Why doesn't he play in their tournaments? Because it's school. It's not a rep team that makes money by charging parents to bring their kids. That's the difference. And this is another example of my kid's great, so get the hell out of the way. I don't care if your kid is in grade four. Mine's in grade three, and he's way better than your kid. Really? And what is this doing for Bryce's development? Has anybody stopped to ponder that? Uh, Let's bring in Ann Douglas, parenting expert, author of the Mother of All Baby Book series. And she is with us now. Ann, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, I love your passion. I just was entranced listening to you. (laughs) I wish my kids would say that. Uh, I know. So what what are your thoughts on this, Ann? Like, I mean, I got kids in school, kids in sports, and, and I see both sides of this. Uh, of this argument, but this doesn't seem like the venue. No, and I think you you hit it bang on the head when you brought in, like, you know, what is this from the son's point of view? And I was thinking, like, where did he get the idea that he doesn't want to play with other kids his own age? Like, that's kind of not a thing that a young child would sort of spontaneously say on their own. Like, it almost sounds to me like he's anticipating that his dad or somebody else wants him to think that way, and so he feels like he has to live up to that. And then I started thinking about, you know, the whole thing where the dad was talking about how it was his role to support and push. I think support, we can give them 110%. We want parents to support their kids. And maybe a, a way to do this would be for the kid to sit down and write a letter to the principal saying, I find this really frustrating and this is why I think in future we might want to do it a different way or here's my idea or whatever. That's great. Any kid has the right to sort of have a voice. But push? That sounds like that, that old question, like, whose dream is this anyways? What about even hanging out with the team? Volunteering to just attend practice? I'm just going to sit and watch. I'm going to be showing enthusiasm for next year. I mean, there's so many other creative things that the kid could benefit from other than getting his dad to protest and start a human rights tribunal. Yeah, I think there are a lot of ways he could be involved. And I started to think, like, from the board's point of view or the school's point of view, can you imagine the chaos? Like, what if a kid in, you know, Toronto or some other place decides they want to try out for that team because, you know what, they're good too? Or what if somebody else decides that they don't actually like the existing rules of the sport and those should be rewritten and let's do it this way? I mean, it could just become, you know, so bad, right? 
It sounds like the parent is living vicariously through the kid, doesn't it? Although that's an easy out, I guess. Well, I think sometimes we all do that to a certain extent. I know I've been guilty of it, you know. Cause Not me. Never crazy, happens but... to me at a hockey game. No way. I never scream. So I could, I could totally understand the dad feeling that way and his, you know, his gut instinct is to do this for his, his son. But sometimes as a parent, you have to put the brakes on yourself and say, you know, let's look at this in the whole big picture of this, you know, of this. Is this going to be good for him over the long run? Is it going to be good for the other kids? What about the school? And, you know, that like you were saying, that whole idea of team spirit, maybe being like the helper behind the scenes this year, the kid will be so pumped and so enthusiastic that next year, you know, stepping forward and moving on to that next stage is a great fit. It's almost as if he's wishing him to grow up faster, which, man, slow it down. If anything, slow it down. Yeah, I know. I I mean, sometimes it seems so tempting that you feel like it's, you know, the forward momentum is what matters, but no, it's not. Like, what if he has an amazing year with kids his own age this year? Maybe that could be the best thing for his development. Or even just hanging out with friends his own age. That radical thing of having spare time and just being able to chill, yes. <laughs> so, uh, how, how do you think this is going to turn out? I have a feeling that it'll be the usual thing where the entire internet has very strong opinions and this poor family is going to find themselves being like the poster child for an argument that is being held in many different places on many different things. For They'll I be poster, ch- poster parents for uh, bad, aggressive parenting, you mean? Well, I don't or the opposite. Them. You know, I don't want to be that mean, but I think that just, you know, we, we've all seen these situations play out in one way or another. And I think that, you know, everybody has an opinion. Everybody has, you know, a dog in this game or whatever. So I think that just, you know, maybe it raises some interesting points for discussion. Maybe there could be some other level of school sports. But you know what? I think teachers and, and volunteer coaches are maxed out already. I don't know if we want to make their lives harder. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've been in scenarios where um, my kid plays hockey and there's always a shortage of goaltenders. And, <laughs> you know, the league's just, well, I shouldn't say that. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it neutral. Um, it, it seems that... <laughs> An anonymous child wants yeah, to play Yes, hockey. exactly, yeah. Yes. And there's, there's always a shortage of goalies, so they're trying to bring yes. goalies along. And in, in, um, in, in two scenarios, there's two goalies that are younger than what the team is. Very similar situation to this, yep. but it, but it's due to a shortage of players. Right. And, uh, and some are, are like this kid and elevated and can play, and there's others that can't. And, you know, uh, it, it's terrible when it goes wrong. It's terrible yeah. when it goes wrong. It's great when it goes right, but, man, many times it doesn't. And, and it, there's more to being on the ice than just being a good yeah, player. Like, there's the yeah. emotional maturity piece, too, yeah, right? Yeah, And again, is you know, I have often think is, you know, we come in after a game and there's this poor goalie feeling dejected because, you know, he, yeah. he, he couldn't stand up to the to the older players. And, I mean, you know, it's great that you're trying to bring him along, but is, is it worth that? Is it worth, you know, uh, it, he doesn't appear to me like he's having fun. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we all have to learn how to lose before we can learn how to win, but... I don't know. To me, it's just, uh, I think we're putting somebody's attention ahead of the kids in situations like this. Yep. So uh, is the school, has the school taken the right position? I think so. Like I I saw the interview with the the spokesperson. I think it might've been somebody at the board level, but maybe it was at the school, but he was very calm and very respectful and just sort of said, you know, we have to have some basic guidelines in place. Because even what you said, I mean, if it's, if it's a grade four team, that kind of defines who the players are. 
Uh, here's an interesting point. If it were something, and this is what the father said, if this were something to do with academics, such as the math team or the spelling bee or even the chess club, for that matter, I don't think this would have been the same issue. But it would if it was like the grade five province-wide math contest held by a university. Then even if you were brilliant and in grade three, you wouldn't be allowed to do it. So I, I don't think that completely holds water. So for you, it's about eligibility. I think it is. Just let's stick with some basic rules and at the same time encourage our kids to be able to respectfully, you know, ask about or challenge those rules. But there's a way to do that. And I don't think rushing to the Human Rights Commission is necessarily, you know, a great first step. Uh, In regard to comparing uh, the statement I just said in regard to academics or a spelling bee team, uh, does that hold water because it's not physical? That shouldn't matter, should it? I don't think so. Like, if it's grade-specific, it's grade-specific. If it's a jelly bean counting contest and it's for grade fives, it's for grade fives. Why do you think uh, we're reacting the way we are? I think because it just it plays a familiar script, and probably some of us know that we've been on both sides of that, where we've been the, the parent who handled it brilliantly and the parent who maybe could have handled it better. And so sometimes we react emotionally to those kind of situations because we see some of ourselves in that dad. Uh, what I'm fearful of, too, and, and again, coaching sports, I've seen this, you know, uh, over the years and such, is that a lot of the time parents that are this hot on their kids' progress usually drive the kid away from it by the time they're in their middle teens, 15, 16, and they start discovering other things like the opposite sex and such. Uh, yeah, well, then they seem to take off. Especially if you've been over-programmed where, you know, it's like a seven-day-a-week job for you. You know, you could be burnt out at eight. So I think that we have to, you know, keep that in perspective as well and realize that if in the end it begins to feel like you're only doing this because you think your parents' approval is contingent on you being a great player, that's a lot of pressure to put on the relationship and on the kid. So uh, do you think this will lead to a change in policy at school? Because lots of times schools, school boards, when this sort of thing starts happening, they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll just close up and, and, and turtle on these sorts of things. Do you think this will change any policies or, uh, or lead so. to any other discussion? Yeah, I think there'll probably be conversations happening because, you know, it always spurs thinking. But I honestly don't, I can't see them changing the policy because it would just be, you know, unsustainable. You could have kindergartens and grade eights wanting to try out. And what if the whole school wanted to try out? I mean, I guess you could have four months of tryouts, but that seems a little bit over the top. Uh, What advice would you have for a parent like this? I think just to to take a breath and realize that, you know, you don't have to sort of, you know, push or make things happen for your child, because sometimes that sends the message to the child that you have to take over and step in because they aren't capable. And I think you also want to teach your child lessons in humility, that they're part of a team, they're, you know, part of a school or whatever, and that they're, they're just one kid. They're not, it's not like they're, you know, president of the school or something, heaven forbid. They're just one kid and to find joy in that as opposed to feeling like they have to be better and having to you know say to their peers um, I'm so much better than you I can't actually play with you really wow and there is a lot of ways it can be interpreted that's for sure Uh, if this does go south and it turns into a social media backlash and hopefully that won't happen um, what how, how does the child combat that how do they bounce back you know now it's not a case of how great i am it's now divisiveness 
Yeah, and also then it's out there in 10 years when the kid's friends are Googling his name or something, then you have this, you know, w- weird drama around, you know, your life a decade ago. So always best to keep family stuff off of social media, I say. Good point. Ann Douglas has been with us, parenting expert and author of the Mother of All Baby Book series. And thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Nice talking to you again. Bye for now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.